sometimes we have really bad days where we'll see multiple patients that get bad results and bad scans and maybe have to come off treatment. And those days are heartbreaking and so hard. It, it is hard sometimes to be resilient through those um, through those days. But honestly, knowing that you're making even the smallest impact on that person's life or day, that maybe just my smile, like, warm them up a little or the fact that I like you said held their hand or even gave them a hug. Hi everybody. This is Diane Gilman. My podcast Too Young to Be Old is all for women over 55 and we are focusing on Breast Cancer Awareness Month and I am a breast cancer survivor. So I would like to say it is my privilege and my pleasure to introduce what I consider the heroes of the battle on cancer, the unsung heroes, which are the chemotherapy nurses. And we've got just such a gorgeous young woman with such a great heart today, Amy Wynn, who's going to tell us what it's like to be a chemo nurse. If you have ever accompanied anyone to a chemotherapy infusion session, or if you've been one of us, the ladies who had the breast cancer or any form of cancer and had to go through having those chemicals pumped into your body, you know that there is very high tension, high energy, and utter devotion to getting each and every one of us as patients through it. Amy, it is so good to have you today. And I have to ask this question. What is a beautiful young woman like you doing in such a high tension field? Now, we talked about in our pre-call motivation. Mm -hmm. And I always think that for some of us, what we do later in life in our adulthood is our calling. For me, I started as a two-year-old, three-year-old, making little dresses for my dolls. I didn't want to play with baby dolls. What about you? Did you want to play doctor? Did you want to treat people's boo-boos? How did you come to know that this was your calling? Yeah, so from a young age, I could tell I liked to care for people. I liked to care for my dolls. And uh, me and my brother dressed up for Halloween as a nurse and a doctor. And (laughs) that is exactly what we are today as a nurse and a doctor. Um, So it was like written in the stars almost. I always just had this passion to want to help people in some way. I don't think I knew exactly what that meant as a kid. But then as I got older, I realized nursing is the perfect profession where I can help people. So... Nursing is one part of it, but you could always be a nurse in a doctor's office. What you chose, to me, is honestly, you are one of the unsung heroes. I don't think anybody realizes, unless you went through intensive chemo for almost three quarters of a year like me, how 
how fraught the atmosphere is, how how tense it is. Because you know what I said to you? Every time I went for chemo infusion, somebody was going into anaphylactic shock, oh. stop breathing, every alarm oh. goes off. You guys are all running on high alert. So are you an adrenaline junkie as well? <laughs> I actually think I am. I love adventure. I love living with that adrenaline. You know, I go on vacation, there's a cliff and you're like, oh yeah, you can jump off it into the water. I'm the first one out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like the the high intensity type of uh, feelings with the job as well. But I also like those more calm moments where I'm just sitting with the patients and getting to know them. But tell me something, you know, there, and, and for me, my belief was always, and what I was told, now you're at Sloan Kittering, incredible cancer research hospital in New York City, but you were previously at Mount Sinai where I was being treated in the Dubin Breast Cancer Center. How do you deal with your vulnerability? In other words, you're only human. You see people at all ranges of illness. How do you keep yourself together? How do you compartmentalize that? And does it, in fact, at times make you really sad? Does a patient's triumph make you happy? I just, I say hats off to you, but tell us, how does that vulnerability? were. Yeah, so part is part of it is I feel like my in my nature I'm just a very empathetic person. I'm a Pisces. I want to feel those feelings. I kind of take them on. So that's how I really try to connect with my patients and help them through it. But you're also human like you said. So it's okay if you get emotional with your patient. I've had patients say goodbye to me. They know they're stopping treatment and this is kind of maybe the last time they'll see me and I'll sit and hold their hand and I might cry. And that's okay too, because they want to see that we're human and that really shows them how much we care. You know, it's funny, uh, although it was not funny at the time, but um, I never had one chemo nurse that held my hand or, I mean, they were happy to see me because I always put on a cheerful face. But I remember when I had to get that telling MRI before I began chemo mm -hmm. and my oncologist was going to read it out to me and it was either going to say, no, it hasn't metastasized and spread or yes, it has. So I remember she's like going through some chemical explanation. And I'm like, oh, come on, please get to the point. This is my life. And she said, no, I'm knocking on wood right now. It has not metastasized. And I remember literally jumping over her desk and going, oh, my God. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, I'm thanking someone who's just reading a report, but I could also see the horror in her face like, oh, my gosh, get away from me. We put a little distance in here. Yeah, we, we did um, at Dubin. They were all super competent nurses, and there were definitely days in that infusion center where I could see people, some of these nurses were at the point of 
oh my God, what am I doing here? I'm pulling a double shift. And then actually the nurse that had taken care of me left that unit. She got promoted to be in charge of all nurses, but she literally couldn't do it anymore. But she used to talk during every infusion session about they were going away every weekend, she and her husband. Every weekend to a new city, a new town, a new bungee jumping, a new adventure. Amy, what keeps you going? And what do you do to diffuse yourself when you're not in that high tension career? Mm -hmm. What do you do? Yeah. So one thing I I do regularly is I work out. I hit the CrossFit gym. I might go for a run, especially after a hard day with, you know, maybe not a great outcome with a patient that really helps me kind of release it all, release the stress and the tension and clear my mind. So I hopefully don't take it home with me, but unfortunately sometimes you do. Um, And it can be hard, but I also have a great support system and friends and family that will, will you know, let me cry on their shoulder, let it out. And, and my understanding is that you count on teamwork. Absolutely. As opposed to my profession, where it's Mm -hmm. my name's on the label. It's all about (laughs) me, 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 me. For you, it's all about the unit, the group that you dispense empathy and medicine with. Talk a little about that. and Because when you talked about it with me um, on our original phone call, there was a warmth and a thankfulness mm-hmm. to the fact that you were part of a unit. Absolutely. I can't do it alone. And even um, the doctors, I feel like we are a team and they give us that respect that we are part of their team. And the other nurses I work with, you know, you always have someone you can turn to, whether it's for a question, whether it's you had a bad day. Um, Let's do book club and go um, to dinner after work to decompress. Um, The teamwork, you know, you're never alone. Um, And we really try to encompass the patient and it's being part of that team and we're there for them. um, And we're all going to work together to make this experience as best as we can. Yeah. I don't know that I really felt that in, in the Mm -hmm. infusion center I was in. You didn't have, even though these nurses might've seen me once a week, I went through a period of, Mm -hmm. I think going every day. Um, they didn't necessarily act like they recognized you because you weren't their patient. They didn't. Yeah. So you had your connection with your nurse and if your Mm -hmm. nurse left and you suddenly had another one to me, I felt like a lot of my foundation was being robbed from me. I, I felt like, Oh, now I'm working with a stranger. But I would also say that one thing that truly just blows me away is you're young, you're beautiful. What you do is very consuming, but obviously it's not enough because you volunteered to go to Nigeria for, for 
infusion, putting up infusion centers. How does that work? And what in your heart of hearts motivated you to do that? Because that is really difficult circumstance. That is actually something also when I was young, I used to always tell my parents like I want to go to Africa and like help people or I want to go to another country where they're poor and help people and again I didn't know exactly at the time what that looked like and as I got into my career I realized there are these opportunities where we can go to low-income countries and as a nurse volunteer or do teaching with these with other nurses or helping patients Um, so I'm very very fortunate and I'm just I feel so blessed that I get to do this work and, and this will be my third trip to Nigeria and every time wow. it, it gets better, I just love going and I can't wait to go again. Well, so what are the surroundings like? Is it a clinic? Is it a hospital? Because I always think to myself that a big part of my survival was the fact that I was in a high income city with the best of the best. And when I will contrast when we'll get to you describing the conditions Mm -hmm. in Nigeria, but at Dubin Breast Cancer Center in Mount Sinai, we had views of Fifth Avenue and even, Mm -hmm. even in the infusion center, which was in the basement, Mm -hmm. we had a giant video screen wall of real time, real life. Mm -hmm. Fifth Avenue, Central Park. So you felt like you were outdoors. Fresh white orchids in every room. Your choice of a foot or a soldier. So a shoulder massage while you were getting infusion. (laughs) A catered organic lunch. Your own private room and TV. I mean, we're talking here. Mm -hmm. Top of the line. You know, yeah, this this was like the four seasons of infusion centers. It was incredible. Talk to me about what it was like in Nigeria, especially the first time you went before Mm -hmm. you'd established a medical presence there. Yeah, so they we go to a specific hospital there in Nigeria. So the hospital's already set up, um, and they've been doing these infusions. But it is such a different environment. I mean you're walking into one room where all the patients will get their infusions. They have, maybe if they're lucky, a recliner chair. It might just be a plastic chair they sit in. Um, There's definitely no TVs. There's no air conditioning. Um, There's fans. Um, We've got some fans. Sometimes the air conditioner may or may not work. And even the power sometimes goes out where the lights will go out for a little bit and then they come back on. So it's definitely completely different and it makes you really humble and also just grateful for what we have um, here in the United States and in other, you know, higher income countries, how lucky we are to have those basic things, really. Yeah. And beyond the basics, um, the Dubin Breast Cancer Center was founded by Dr. Eva Dubin, who had breast cancer and um, found the treatment 
just very disparate, having to go to this center for this x-ray and that center for that Mm x-ray. And she wanted to bring it all together. um, And coincidentally, she was married to a hugely successful investment banker. Mm -hmm. So she took Dubin Center from a totally female, high-end point of view. Like, yeah, I have white orchids in my house. Oh, great. Of course I would have white orchids while I was getting infusion. Uh, You know, it was like I walked in and I thought, oh, yeah, this is my kind of place. Yeah. And yet I know people in this city that maybe didn't have the great medical coverage I had. Mm-hmm. who have to go to an open public infusion center where you're all sitting in a chair in one room and there's no privacy and you may be the only breast cancer patient and everybody else has something else. But yeah. one day there was a huge fire in the basement of Mount Sinai yeah. Hospital and the smoke is billowing out. I'm coming up in a car and they're screaming, if you are at Dubin, we're on fire, go around the corner. So we went to a building of Mount Sinai that was all kinds of cancer. Amy, it was a size, because I asked the nurse that was checking us in, it was the size of two professional football fields. Wow. Do you ever feel as a chemo nurse, that cancer is a tsunami just enveloping us and blotting out the sunlight. I I would love to hear how that feels to you and how you keep your individual courage to keep on going. Yeah, I mean, I think the statistics are one in eight um, females will get breast cancer. It really, working in it feels like It's It's, just, it's everywhere and you're going to absolutely either know someone close to you or I feel like I'll probably get cancer once sometime in my lifetime just because of how really more common it is getting. And um, that could be because we've got better screening and catching it more. But, um, you know, we definitely are also environment. Yeah, I think the environment is a big thing because we're seeing a lot of younger people with cancer in my yes. um, clinic as well. And and I heard that the statistics are actually one in six women yeah. will right. get one breast cancer in their lifetime. One in two men will get cancer. 50% of the male yeah. population, 36% of the female population. So, I guess this leads up to a question of um, not only empathy, but fortitude. Do you ever feel like you are fighting a losing battle because you can only deal with one person at a time and the stream of them just keeps coming? How do you deal with that? But but I think more importantly, how do you interpret those statistics and mm-hmm. see them? Yeah, so sometimes we have really bad days where we'll see multiple patients that get bad results and bad scans and maybe 
you have to come off treatment. And those days are heartbreaking and so hard. It, it is hard sometimes to be resilient through those um, through those days. But honestly, knowing that you're making even the smallest impact on that person's life or day, that maybe just my smile, like, warm them up a little or the fact that I like you said held their hand or even gave them a hug you know I'm not scared to like be vulnerable and and be close with my patients um that was the hardest thing about COVID was I couldn't hug my patients I couldn't have that connection and I felt so disconnected from them and it felt so much harder so I want to ask you another question because when I went in for treatment which was uh End February 2018. My surgeon said, because the surgeon, Dr. Alyssa Port, had written all these best-selling books on navigating breast cancer, mm-hmm. bestsellers on the New York Times. And so she was very good at weaving a story. And she said, you will be, Diane, in the last generation of cancer patients who use just chemotherapy. That is all ending. So I'm thinking, oh yeah, just my luck. I get to go through all this. And so I picture immunotherapy as, I don't know what, like, is it like chemotherapy? Is it different? Is it faster? Is it less painful? Is it less invasive? Is it less time spent. (laughs) Tell us, because as a chemo nurse, you must have to go through training for immunotherapy as well. Do you use it exclusively? Do you use it in conjunction with chemotherapy? How is that revolution, which I understand in one way less invasive and less painful, but is that really true? Give us the lowdown on immunotherapy, please. <laughs> yeah, so immunotherapy definitely is like a hot topic. Everybody wants to get immunotherapy. Um, it, it is still a lot of times given through an IV infusion, um, just like chemo. So it is still that kind of invasive going through your veins. Um, it can be given alone um, just by itself. And sometimes those infusions are pretty quick, like 15 minutes. Wow. Um, or it can be given in addition to chemo to help kind of have better survival or better outcomes um, with the chemo and the immunotherapy both working together. And Um, and what is it? What is immunotherapy? Is it your own cells are trained to fight the disease and then they shoot them into you again. I mean, I've got a million images in my mind and I I know know. none of them are correct, but I do know that the future is here today and we should know about it. What is it? What is being infused into you? Yeah, so um, definitely people aren't sure. So what? A, without getting too scientific, your cells can have specific like receptors that 
this immunotherapy can find on your immune system. And then therefore, it will help your immune system to attack your cancer cells. Um, so we're not taking your immune system, like anything out of your body and putting it back in. We're actually checking for these specific receptors or markers on your cells. And if you have those, you can get these special immunotherapy drugs that will help your body identify the cancer and fight it. Wow. And, and you're saying if you have those receptors. Correct. So does that mean that, and, and now I, I honestly saw two, even, you know, which is pure chemotherapy for me, lucky me. Um, a lot of the treatment seems to have to do with genetics, ACA, the BRCA gene, you mm -hmm. know, whatever. Um, I know someone now who's 60 and it, the gene just manifested itself. And now the whole family is female, sisters, mother, everybody is now going to go get a double mastectomy. And so when you get immunotherapy, that means that not everybody has the genetics Oh, bummer. Correct. Wow. Yeah. So it's hard because, you know, we see it commercialized on TV and everything. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, patients will come in asking, I want to get, you know, this specific drug. I want to get immunotherapy, but not, unfortunately, not everyone can get it. And it's not, it's also not like a magic drug that's absolutely going to cure you either. Um, but I know sometimes the advertising really makes it seem that way. So it's, yeah. we really have to educate and explain these things to our patients so they fully understand and don't feel like they're missing out on something. And, and here's the other thing I heard, too. And, of course, I heard it on cable <laughs> television um, that, that they're, they are now developing and actually have developed vaccines like for melanoma. Mm -hmm. which is a deadly form of cancer. A very dear friend of mine passed from that young too, like 42, yeah. but someone who'd been out in the sun all the time. How does that vaccine work and why? And I guess vaccines for cancer. So if you have melanoma, you can have it once, be cured, and then get a vaccine so you don't get it again. Why can't I get that for breast cancer? What what mm -hmm. differentiates those vaccines and how fast are they coming? Yeah, so we don't really have that. Well, we have vaccines for some cancers to help prevent, such as the um, HPV vaccine to help with um, cervical cancer or yeah. um, hepatitis vaccines to help the risk with liver cancer, but we don't have those for every type of cancer, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I don't know the science behind why why they can't, but it's a really difficult thing. Even just we could see with the COVID vaccine and flu vaccines, it's not easy to develop those. So, and cancer is constantly evolving and changing, which I think is one of the reasons why it can be so hard to find these good treatments, whether it's vaccines, chemo, immunotherapy, because we have to keep up with how smart the cancer is and um, so that we can fight it and still, uh, you know, hopefully cure people. So we know we've, we've discussed a little bit about genetics and how mm -hmm. that plays in. And, and the one thing I know about it is 
the BRCA gene for yeah. breast cancer and the fact that it can actually um, manifest itself, make itself obvious or activate itself much later in life. And you're like, whoa, how did that happen? But Amy, you deal with people every day who, like me, were and are fighting a mortality-driven disease. And um, I did a podcast uh, recently about my feelings about having breast cancer. And I think you relate to this. I said that I, I experienced very little pain, either from all the infusions, because I refused to port. My husband had a port, and I emotionally just couldn't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't even honestly have pain from a double mastectomy. And I felt that when I was diagnosed and the first diagnosis was so scary, I literally had an out-of-body experience and never went back into my body until the whole thing was over with. I never cried a tear. I never complained. I, I just, I almost felt like I was overlooking it mm-hmm. all from a safe distance. Do you find that with a lot of your patients? Yeah, patients definitely sometimes say like they feel like they're, yeah, kind of this out of body experience or it's like they're they're watching themselves go through this. Um, and, you know, it sounds like you had so much grit and perseverance to like push yourself through the treatments to, you know, not feel as bad. It's, you know, your emotional and mental state makes a big impact on how you feel and how you potentially can get through the treatments. So, again, I it's ask you about that. I felt. And I, I used to say it to my oncologist all the time who looked at me like I was a complete moron because oncologists are so much about scientific numbers game. That's what it is to them. Did your numbers come down? Did your numbers stay even? Did your numbers go up? You know, it's, it's almost like you're betting on a high stakes football game every week when you go for the infusion. My question to you, and and I felt that for me, attitude was a great enabler to my medical team. Um, I felt that if I was always in a good mood and I never complained and I put everything into what I did, that it was going to make a difference. But I ask you as a medical practitioner who deals with a whole variety of cancer patients. And it isn't easy being happy in the middle of of, uh, uh, something that's enveloping you and and threatening your very existence. I actually said in my... um, in my podcast that uh, I felt like I love to watch all these movies on Lifetime, like the girl in the shed, the girl in the box. (laughs) Yeah. I felt like the girl in the box. I felt like I had to respect chemo and couldn't go beyond my bounds energy wise. But I also felt that attitude and never letting it overwhelm me was 
a great part of my self-treatment. So I'm asking you as final question, how important is the attitude of your patients? How important is lifestyle? And do you try to participate in explaining or pivoting either of those attitude or lifestyle? How does that work for you as chemo nurse? Yeah, so absolutely. Those things are so important, like your mental well-being, your attitude towards it, your support system. That can really make an impact. So, um, for instance, I have a very uh, young woman with cancer and, you know, emotionally was having a really hard time. So, again, the teamer comes in and we get social work involved, looking for support groups and other resources to really help give her that extra support she may need. Um, and then a lot of times also talking to patients about their diet and their lifestyle. I really promote like exercise, even if it's, um, couch yoga, I think they call it when you're sitting and you're just moving your legs and arms, any type of physical activity really can help with decreasing side effects of going through chemo, help your mental state, your emotional state. Really? Absolutely. I did not, but realized I was 72, 73 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not have the energy for the exercise part of it, but, and I'm suffering for that now because I, and because also I, I had, um, I have lymphedema in my left arm and my right leg. So I'm dealing with a lot of the after effects that frankly were never discussed going through primary treatment. But I always thought a good attitude. And could you have laughter every day? And and could you find some joy in the day? And I am someone who's very purpose-driven. So for me, changing, modifying, customizing my diet to be hopefully all chemical-free, all preservative-free, as organic as I could be, and building little menus that were healthy every day and it was something to look forward to. I personally felt that, well, hello, I felt that that had a lot to do with positive results for me. Uh, Does that seem crazy to you? Is that just the hallucination of a patient that didn't want to, to deal or to live in a fear zone. Does that seem right and, and actually manifest into something physically good? Yeah. You're not crazy at all. That definitely can manifest into something good. Um, you know, I, I think that definitely helps patients sometimes have good outcomes or just get through treatment better. But even some of our like strongest, most high-willed patients that really go in with this, I'm a fighter, I'm going to beat this, we unfortunately still see not always positive outcomes, but I think it helps them still get through it better um, rather than if they had a, a attitude of like defeat going into it. Yeah, I had one doctor who got me to the head surgeon at Mount Sinai, and this we have to do this in closing because honestly, I could talk to you forever. Um, and 
you know, when I said, well, my first diagnosis, which was from an x-ray technician who said, you're hopeless, you are hopeless, it is everywhere. He said, don't be ridiculous, Diane. He said, nobody dies of primary breast cancer in this day and age. Don't listen to that. That was great advice. And then, honestly, my biggest cheerleader was my surgeon, Dr. Alyssa Port, who was just matter of fact, no nonsense, but just like, I'm looking in your eyes. You are a healthy individual with a localized disease in a part of your body you don't need. And I thought, okay, I get it. You are right. And that became the foundation and the basis. So I could talk to you forever, and I wish you had been one of my chemo nurses. My God. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. Amy, you are an incredible young woman. And the fact that you dedicate your life to an ongoing epidemic and somehow you keep your courage and your strength and your optimism and your positivity and you don't let it overcome you and take you into a dark place. And so that, of course, means your patients are in a lighter space as well. I say for all of my sisterhood of breast cancer survivors. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I could do this all day. <laughs> me too, but they're saying, Diane, you're already <laughs> two minutes over. So best of luck in Nigeria. Please thank keep you. in touch with me. And it was just, this was fabulous. Thank you. Too young to the old podcast episode. Just fabulous. My pleasure. Bye. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening to Too Young to Be Old podcast. The episode may be over, but the fun doesn't have to stop here. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at The Diane Gilman, or visit our website, thedianegilman.com. If you like the show, Leave us a rating or a review and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And until then, don't forget, age is just a number. Together, we'll prove that we are all too young to be old. <laughs>